Hey, for those of you that are watching by way of YouTube or Facebook, uh, we'd encourage you to go directly to jdfrog.org for the uncensored, uninterrupted entirety of today's update. And with that, we're going to get started and jump right in. Uh, I want to talk with you today about what's come to be known as Stockholm Syndrome, specifically how it eerily and prophetically describes everything that's happening in the world today. Now, I want to, by way of introduction, uh, read a compilation from several sources that define what Stockholm Syndrome is, and more importantly, why it happens. Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological phenomenon of an emotional attachment to a captor formed by a hostage as a result, listen, of continuous stress, dependence, and a need to cooperate for survival. It's a coping mechanism to a captive or abusive situation, wherein a captive begins to identify closely with his or her captors, as well as with their agenda and their demands. The name is derived from a botched bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. In August 1973, four employees were held hostage in the bank's vault for six days. During the standoff, a seemingly odd bond developed between captive and captor. One hostage during a telephone call with the Swedish Prime Minister stated that she fully trusted her captors, but feared that she would die in a police assault on the building. The hostages were rescued, but despite threats and abuse, including being strapped with dynamite, they were surprisingly supportive of their captors. Amazingly, one woman later became engaged to one of the hostage takers, and another developed a legal defense fund to assist their captors. Those who have studied the syndrome believe that the bond is initially created when a captor threatens a captive's life, deliberates, and then chooses not to kill the captive. The captive's relief at the removal of the death threat is transposed into feelings of gratitude toward the captor for giving him or her life. As the incident proves, it takes only a few days for this bond to cement, proving that early on, the victim's desire, listen very carefully to this, the victim's desire to survive supersedes the urge to hate the person who created the situation. The survival instinct is at the heart of the syndrome. Victims live in enforced dependence and interpret rare or small acts of kindness in the midst of horrible conditions as good treatment. They often become hypervigilant to the needs and demands of their captors, making psychological links between the captors' happiness and their own. Indeed, the syndrome is marked not only by a positive bond between captive and captor, but also by a negative attitude on behalf of the captive toward authorities who threaten the captor-captive relationship. The negative attitude is especially powerful 
when the hostage is of no use to the captors, except as leverage against a third party. And then lastly, and again, listen very carefully, a person can develop Stockholm Syndrome when they experience significant threats to their physical or psychological well-being. I hope, and my hope and prayer is and has been, that all of us can start to connect the dots with what's happening now, especially as it relates to today's global taskmasters. Sadly, many a professing Christian has fallen prey to this notion that said taskmasters are in control of everything they do, and even whether they live or die. Thankfully they don't. God does. And we are not to fear man. The fear of man is an enslaving trap and snare. Rather, we're to fear the Lord. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Can't wait. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here's the truth. We have a Savior. His name is Jesus. And He will save us from hell and deliver us from the sin and the bondage of this world, the flesh, and the devil. However, these horrible conditions and, as we just read, significant threats to our physical and psychological well-being seemingly continue to worsen with each passing day. Now hear me out when I say this, because at first it might seem a little bit um, hard to grasp. But what if I told you that this is actually a good thing? Yeah, I knew it, Pastor. You're sick, man. What is wrong with you? I know they have clinical terms for this. <laughs> but this is actually a good thing, and I'll explain why, if you'll hear me out. It's a good thing because, like Israel's slavery in Egypt, Egypt a type of the world, it was excruciatingly unbearable right before God delivered them from their captors, if I can say it like that. Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, you're back in lockdown. No, that's not what it says, but I probably should give you a little bit of the backstory here. So Moses has just, as God commanded him to, gone to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's response was, yeah, no problem. No. His response was, are you kidding me? They're complaining? They must have extra time on their hands. Uh, here's what we're going to do. Here's what they can do with that extra time on their hands. Uh, have them get their own straw to make those bricks. And by the way, archaeologists have found that many of the structures that were built by these very Israelite slaves, you'll notice the quality of the bricks changed. The, the composition of the brick. I love it when archaeology proves the Bible. 
I could go on on that. I won't, because it'll derail me from what I really want to talk about today. But you know, when they find something, they dig, they do a dig. You know, these archaeologists, and they want to discover the civilization. Well, what have we found? Well, how do we know? Oh, I know. Let's go to the Bible. Okay, anyway, that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, so instead of letting them go, he makes it harder on them. And now they've got to go out and get their own straw. He says, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet <laughs> it's even worse than that. None of your work will be reduced. Those quotas, same quotas. And don't complain or I'll increase the quotas with no straw. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, come on, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as before? Question, why? Why did God choose to deliver His people in this way? I mean, He's going to deliver them, but why allow this to happen? Why have it be so much worse and so much more difficult? Because they would want to be delivered. Stay with me. Had the conditions under their captors been more bearable, they wouldn't have been as eager to be delivered. You've got to know that by that 10th plague, in fact, the, the detail in the narrative says they left with haste. They were commanded to get out of here. You don't have to tell me to get out. I'm out of here, man. Are you kidding me? I, you had me at frogs, not frogs, frogs. <laughs> Those, the, the stench alone, you had me at that. The 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, oh, it's so powerful, the, the whole typology in the 10 plagues. But again, I don't want to digress, but did you make that connection? See, I got to get my people out of Egypt, but the only way they're good, because they're too comfortable there. Yeah, but they're slaves. I know, but they've kind of developed a little bit of a bond <laughs> with their captors and taskmasters. They did? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, after being delivered, during the wilderness wanderings, they wanted to go back. They, they, they had this bond with and this dependence on the Egyptian taskmasters. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. This is just two and a half months after being delivered from their slavery in Egypt. We're told, verse 2, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, listen to this, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. At least in Egypt, we could depend on them to feed us. Yeah, but you were being held hostage. Yeah, but they ordered in pizza that one day, remember? Is that too much? I'm just trying to help you connect some dots here. They were hungry. At least our captors fed us. 
We really appreciated their, their lifting of restrictions and, you know, kind of giving us a little bit of freedom and ordering pizza <laughs> or letting us go out to a restaurant and eat. Okay, I'm going to leave that one there with you and the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is just one part. No, I'm, I'm trying to establish a, a principle here concerning the aforementioned Stockholm Syndrome. Numbers chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. And by the way, for those of you who know the Bible, <laughs> um, this is just a fraction of all of the accounts in Scripture when the Israelites complained against God, against Moses and Aaron, and wanted to go back into slavery. They wanted to go back into bondage. They wanted to go back into that bank vault. Because at least there they had something to eat. They're out in the wilderness. There's no food. And here's God going, oh, I'll provide food. Watch me now. No, we don't. And then God does it. The man is there every day without fail. And then what happens? We want meat to eat. They fed us meat in Egypt. You know, prime rib. And are you hungry? Because So verse 3, Numbers 14, why has the Lord, listen to this, brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Uh, <laughs> what? I realized that it was not known as Stockholm Syndrome then, but it sure seems to be textbook as it relates to the world now. The world today has developed a bond with and a dependence on the Egypt of this world, and it's come as a result of the abuse and the need to cooperate for survival. That cooperation supersedes the hatred for those that perpetrated this to begin with. In fact, what comes packaged with this bond and dependence is a defensiveness. We've started up our own legal defense fund. And we're so quick to defend the narrative of this world. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they imposed harsh restrictions on us, but there were those acts of kindness where they just kind of let up and, hey, I don't have to be injected to go to a restaurant now or get on a plane now. And so, thank you. Thank you. You're so kind, so grateful. Well, this brings me full circle to Stockholm Syndrome and how it eerily and prophetically describes exactly what's happening today. If you'll kindly allow me to, I want to expound on this more for the remainder of our time together today. So we'll go ahead at this time and end the live stream on YouTube and Facebook. So I want to approach this by asking a series of specific questions that I think all of us would do well to consider in this regard. And this is kind of a uh, maybe a litmus test of sorts, for lack of a better uh, description, or a a test to diagnose whether or not we have this Stockholm Syndrome. First, 
And I want you to think through these questions, and, and please have ears to hear, okay? Are we looking to a leader for our freedoms and liberties under the banner of them saving us from that which they themselves created? Second, are we grateful to the perpetrators of this evil, and it is evil, for the temporary relief from restrictions, and as such their imposed threats? Again, the, the physical and psychological threat to our very survival. Third, Am I full of anxiety, confused, stressed, fearful, and depressed because of COVID and the abuse and torture that it continues to inflict? Yeah, we've got a little bit of a reprieve, a little bit of a respite. Oh, perfect. Enjoy it. <laughs> Fourth, have my feelings changed as a result of the abuse and torture at the hands of those responsible for this satanic genocide? And fifth and finally, and perhaps more importantly, and I really want you to think through this one, have I developed a defensive and combative attitude towards anyone who dares speak truth to me in love? Let me ask the same question in a different way. Am I defending the perpetrators? So someone comes to me and says, hey, you're, you know you're being held hostage, right? You know that you're in bondage, right? You know that they are trying to control you, right? And you pull your mask down <laughs> and start defending them. And all anyone has to do, I mean, how dare they? Because they love you. That's how dare they. See, we don't just speak the truth in love. We speak the truth because of love. Think about it in the parenting relationship. You love your children. I mean, if you didn't love them, you wouldn't care. I mean, go ahead. No, I love you so much. I have to say something. This path that you're on, oh, it may feel right. How can something that feels so good be so wrong? It is the way of death. You're deceived. And I love you enough to put our relationship and friendship in jeopardy and tell you the truth, because the wounds of a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. By the way, I just thought of this and probably should mention it. Uh, this Thursday, 7 o'clock, we're in Jeremiah, right? Midweek, going through the Bible. Uh, two chapters, Lord willing, this week, chapters 27 and 28. And it's so interesting because in chapter 27 of Jeremiah, four times, no less than four times we read, they prophesied lies. They prophesied a lie four times. Then you get to chapter 28, and we read, they make people trust in a lie. Although, wow, that could have been, that's what I love about God's Word, right? No matter where you're at in God's Word, it's where you're at in your life, because God's Word is active and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut surgically. You're believing a lie. You've been deceived. I'm telling you the truth. And you're defensive. 
Hmm. Why are you defending the very perpetrators of the evil in which you are now suffering? Why are you defending the narrative? Have you been so brainwashed? You know, there is a difference between being brainwashed and having your, and washing your brain. Yeah, I know, Pastor, you lost it a long time ago. But hey, think about this, okay? The washing, the renewing of your mind with the Word of God, the water of the Word of God. Don't be conformed to this world, Egypt, this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, how? By the water of the Word of God. See, we've been brainwashed. We need to have now a washing of our brains, a renewing of our minds. That's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, by the way. When we were going through Romans verse by verse, I still, after teaching the same passage twice, I had to go back the second week and say, you know what? There's more here. We can't go to verse 3 yet. <laughs> we spent a couple weeks in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. And even after that, I'm like, I still don't get it. <laughs> There's so much more here about the renewing of your mind, because the battleground's in the mind. Mind control, brainwashing, programming. They programmed us. That's why it's called programs, by the way, on channels. We talked about that. Hollywood, Holly, the ho yeah. It's even worse than that. It's a deception. It's a lie. And why are you getting so defensive? I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And you're getting all defensive? You're defending the, the, the captor? You're the captive. You're, you're, defend, you're defending Egypt? They, do you remember? Apparently you have selective memory, because this, this same Egypt that I guess gave you a buffet meal one day with leeks and onions on the side in a tray. I guess maybe they did that, but you're not remembering that it's the same Egypt that also made you get your own straw and keep the same quota of bricks. You also seem to have forgotten that it's the same Egypt that abused you and beat you and tortured you and tormented you. Why are you defending them? Why are you setting up a legal defense for them? Ah, I got to keep going here. Let me share with you the genesis of this uh, update today. About three weeks ago, um, I'm just, you know, in my time with the Lord, and I'm in the Word, and I'm in prayer. And, and I just remembered this Stockholm Syndrome. I remember uh, reading about it, doing some research on it. And so I, I decided just to kind of refresh my memory. I kind of knew a little bit about what it was about, but I knew there was something there. So I started doing some research, and I, I put some notes in my file and saved it in a file that I <laughs> call need more information file. You know which one I'm talking about, the file that you put information in, and, and uh, I might come back to that. Well, I did that. And I had actually a, a pretty good amount of notes on Stockholm Syndrome. And I thought, hmm, this, is, this sounds very familiar. Stockholm Syndrome. So last week, I'm talking with a dear pastor friend of mine on the phone. And in the course of our conversation, which was long overdue, he says to me, JD, it's like 
Stockholm Syndrome. I'm like, that's it. Boom. I think they have a word for it. It's called confirmation. So we kind of went back and forth, and I uh, ran out of time, had a staff meeting to get to. So I just texted him. I said, hey, can you, can you just kind of expound on that? Because uh, I was thinking the same exact thing. And I'd like to hear more about what you have to say. So he did. And he's given me permission to share some of what he wrote in regards to Stockholm Syndrome and the COVID abuse and torture. He says, I noticed that people were ever so grateful when even the worst abuses were only mildly curtailed. The population in Hawaii who were severely abused mentally, physically and emotionally seem to celebrate their captors or the most minor concessions. But it was a one-way ratchet, ever tightening and never substantially loosening. Our people were the battered wife in an abusive marriage. If our population were an abused spouse, she could have said, he won't let me go to work or see my friends or go outside, but it's my fault. I shouldn't have gotten sick. I should have known better. So I'm thankful that he hasn't beaten me in a couple days. The similarities are uncanny once the metaphor becomes clear. Why would anyone stay in such a relationship? Battered wife syndrome? Stockholm syndrome? Unfortunately, there is another side to the Stockholm syndrome, that of the perpetrators. The victims become subservient, but the criminals become emboldened. Stockholm syndrome was a perverted bond that had formed around the dehumanizing abuse they'd endured. The victims identified and empathized with their abusers, even protecting them. And in our cases, listen, continued to vote for them. I could close a prayer right now and we would be good, right? I won't. You're not getting off that easy. That, that got me, by the way, I just have to say. In a separate text message, this dear pastor friend of mine wrote the following, and in a way it took the proverbial words right out of my mouth. Quote, Denial of the diabolical events and abuse surrounding the COVID operation has placed us, speaking of him and I, whose eyes are open, in a wholly different camp. I find it nearly impossible to be in fellowship with those ministers who refuse to see things as they truly are. We have resisted the initial forays into transhumanism, while others, including pastors, have embraced the new normal, the beginning of it anyway. Speaking to pastors who naively move along like it's church in 2018 is an exercise in madness to me. Bombs are falling. Yet they refuse to see that we're in a war. Real fellowship in such times becomes rare and sweet. Thanks for being awake and allowed. I could probably count on one hand the number of pastors that I can have this kind of a dialogue with, by the way, sadly. Well, over the last few weeks, as you probably noticed, I don't know how you couldn't, the prophecy updates have been intense. And the common denominator 
has been that of lies and deception as really the main sign of the end. Did you catch that? It's not earthquakes, which by the way are increasing. Uh, it's not famines, which by the way is happening and increasing. It's not wars and rumors or threats of wars, which by the way are happening and increasing. It's not pestilences and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, though all of that is happening and increasing, like birth pains in greater frequency and intensity. The number one sign is deception. Deception. Let no man deceive you. Do not be deceived. 2 Thessalonians 2, perhaps the most powerful prophetic passage in this regard. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, actually with specificity, details in great detail the chronology of the events. First, the rapture has to happen. That's verse 3. The departure, spiritual departure. It's not a departing from the faith. That's later. It's the rapture. It's a physical departure. That comes first, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Then the Antichrist is revealed, that man of sin. And here's the thing about this man of sin. He's going to do these lying, lying, lying signs and wonders. Wow! Did you see that? Wow! Jesus of that said that were those days not shortened, speaking of the seven-year tribulation, even the very elect would be deceived. And furthermore, if those days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. So deception, he's going to deceive. And it's going to be, get this, it's, it's incredible, for lack of a better word. If you got a better word, let me know. But incredible, <laughs> because it's God Himself who sends this powerful delusion this strong deception. Why does He do that? That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem fair. No, they've already made up their mind. They've already rejected the truth. Who's the truth? Jesus. So because they've rejected the truth, and by the way, He's the truth, not a truth. He's the way, the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through Him. So they've rejected the truth. Now they've opened themselves up to the lie. And they're going to believe the lie, this powerful delusion. But God. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of many this day. Because that's exactly what is going to happen with Israel one day. Now, I want to, again, just bear with me here, because I want to try to wrap it up but not before making this very important connection to deception. Deception is the catalyst for salvation. Wait, what do you mean? Well, in the seven-year tribulation, the Jewish nation will come to salvation. Do you know when? when they realize that they believed the lie, the false Messiah, 
that they've been deceived. It was a deception. And this deception, the false, the lie, will be the catalyst that brings them to the truth, Jesus. And for the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, God is going to protect His people who have now come to their true Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And then at the second coming, which by the way, this is why the enemy from the very beginning has tried to exterminate, annihilate, eliminate, terminate all the eights, <laughs> the Jewish people. See, Jesus had to come from that bloodline, if I can say it like that. So if He could somehow corrupt the bloodline, make it impure, alter the DNA, He could thwart the first coming. Didn't work. He tried, uh, starting with Cain and Abel, to thwart the seed of the woman, but it came through not Abel, but Seth. Then when that failed, all throughout history, go to the Old Testament, in fact, we were just talking about Pharaoh in, in Egypt. All of the Hebrew male boys were cast into the Nile to their certain death to eliminate the Hebrews. That was demonic. That was Satan trying to eliminate the Jewish people, to exterminate the seed of the woman that would come from this people, this bloodline. Save Moses, who was a deliverer a type of Christ. Fast forward to one of my favorite books in all the Bible, which all of the books are my favorite books in all the Bible, but Esther. We talked about this a little bit on Thursday night. Haman, demon-possessed, gets the king to issue an edict to exterminate and annihilate and terminate all of the Jews. Mordechai, Esther, for such a time as this. And by the way, if you don't do this, deliverance will come from another. But Haman was demon-possessed in the efforts to eliminate God's people in that bloodline, so the Messiah could not come. Well, the Messiah comes. Now we've got to shift gears and regroup, and now we've got to thwart His second coming. Enter Herod the boys two years of age and younger were, I'm sorry, butchered, murdered at His hands. Fast forward to, and we're going to talk about this more in a moment, one Adolf Hitler. What is it? They all start with H. Haman, Herod, and Hitler. Anyway, never mind. That was just a side note. The last century, demon-possessed in his efforts to eliminate the Jews. You know, the final ultimate ultimate will be during the seven-year tribulation via the Antichrist, who will try to destroy all of the Jews. But God, but God, the whole house of Israel will be saved. And here's the thing, Jesus can't come, the second coming, until they call upon Him. See, Satan knows the Bible better than you and I do. Did you know that was in the Bible? They're going to call upon Him and look upon Him, the one whom they had pierced and wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions. And they're going to call on their true Messiah. And then He comes. And guess who's going to be with Him? You too. Raise your hands. <laughs> the rapture, He comes for us. The second coming, He comes with us, ten thousands by His side. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. Let's get back to our prophecy update already in progress here. So are you with me on this? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot better way to say what I just tried to say. But deception is the catalyst for salvation. It's coming to the realization, I have been deceived and believed 
a lie. And it brings me to the truth, Jesus. And that's what the whole point of these prophecy updates is, right? Is to get Jesus to people and people to Jesus. And so when one realizes, wait a minute. Oh, I see what that pizza was about. Okay, I won't use that one anymore. <laughs> oh, you deceived me. You, and I've defended you? you? You perpetrated this. You did this. And I was deceived. Had a, uh, was it an email or a comment last week? And precious sister in Christ, she said, man, Pastor J.D., just wow. Ah, I was so deceived. Not anymore. She said, it has brought me, coming to that realization has brought me so close to Jesus. I'm back in His Word now like never before. That's the point. That's the point. Okay. Now, dare I say that we are closer to this day, today, than any can possibly realize. And it's evidenced by this United Nations news report on Thursday. Did you hear about this? Unprecedented. That's an understatement. Unprecedented. Israeli Prime Minister Lapid, I guess until they find a Prime Minister who can actually form a government and keep a government for the fifth time. Don't you find that interesting? So Lapid, acting Prime Minister, I guess, is now, lo and behold, backing the two-state solution. Unprecedented. Um, for, for those of you that have been uh, a part of the ministry or uh, part of the Prophecy Updates, you know, I hope you know, if you don't know, you need to know, and this is the truth, I'm speaking the truth to you, that the two-state solution is Hitler's final solution repackaged. What was the final solution to eliminate the Jews? What is the two-state solution? Oh, it's so that the Jews and the Palestinians can live side by side in peace and security. <laughs> you lie, you lie, you lie. No, let me tell you what the two-state solution is. You make peace with your enemy, and then you destroy your enemy. Where did that come from? Oh, Yasser Arafat. Oh, he'd come over here to the U.S. and, you know, they'd roll out the red carpet and then President Clinton and, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Yitzhak Rabin, then Prime Minister, and Yasser Arafat there on the White House lawn. You remember this? September 1993, a September to remember. Every September is a September to remember. Um, they, they, they shake hands. It means nothing to the Iris, by the way. That's not how you make a deal. You have to break bread and eat from the same table. That's how you seal a deal in the Middle East. Just shake hands <laughs> for the camera. Photo up. He goes back to Ramallah. And in Arabic he says, peace for us means the d destruction of Israel. And they're all cheering. Um, Two-state solution, dividing Jerusalem. Joel 3.2, Zechariah 12, Daniel 9.27, I can go on. And actually 2 Thessalonians 2, by the way. Because we're told that the Antichrist in the rebuilt temple will set himself up as God, declaring himself to be God. And that'll be an abomination. It'll be at that point where they realize this is not our Messiah. And that's what's going to bring them to their true Messiah, Jesus the Christ. 
This is dividing Jerusalem. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to say it like that. That'll sound really mean. I'll just say it like this. <laughs> don't you just love these conversations I have with myself up here in front of you? <laughs> well, I do. It's, I hope it's the Holy Spirit, because if not, then I'm in, I'm in trouble. But um, this is uh, the deal of the century. Uh, this is the Abraham Accords. This is the dividing of Jerusalem. Uh, this is the end of claims, end of conflict in the deal of a century. Both Jews and Palestinians, to end the conflict, have to end their claims on Jerusalem. Wait, excuse me, <laughs> the Jews have to end their claims on Jerusalem? You might want to check with God on that. <sighs> I'm trying. I just, I mean, I'm looking at the clock. I hate that. Thank God there's no clocks in heaven. So here's some quotes from this UN report. Prime Minister Yair Lapid on Thursday said, a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the right thing for Israel. And he goes on to say this, we want to live in peace, but only if it gives us security. Not if, I'm so glad you responded that way. That tells me you know 1 Thessalonians 5.3. You better. I mean, after all these years, you don't know 1 Thessalonians 5.3? Now listen, if you're new, that's okay. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, spoiler alert. While they are saying peace and security, sudden destruction, sudden destruction, that's destruction that comes suddenly. I know, deeply profound. Sudden destruction comes upon them as a woman in labor, there's those labor pains again, and they will not escape. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says. While they're saying, He just said it! He just said it! Peace is secure right there. Oh, sudden. Sudden destruction is coming down, and we're going up. Bring it on. Right here. Oh, come on, Pastor, you're being dramatic. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Speaking on a nuclear Iran, Lapid said, quote, the only way to prevent this is to put a credible military threat on the table and then negotiate a longer and stronger deal with them. <laughs> it's Daniel 9.27. Ezekiel 38. Okay, I'm going to try to bring this in for a landing. Here's the bottom line. The delusion and deception today are a powerful prophetic indication of this being how it ends because this is the end. We're at the end. And this is why we do these prophecy updates. This is why we end with the gospel. This is why we do the ABCs of salvation, a childlike explanation of salvation, not a formula. It's just one way to explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15 the first four verses, that Jesus came and He died for you, for me, paid in full for you and me. He was buried and He rose again on the third day, and He's coming back again one day. That's the good news, the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Your debt has been paid, you're free to go. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Well, the A is for admit or acknowledge. Again, not a formula. Please don't make this into a formula. 
It's just a way to explain the gospel. And if you think about it, the A is the first step, because unless and until I admit and acknowledge that I've sinned, why would I be interested in the Savior? And you ask the person on the street, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? What's their answer going to be? Yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. I never murdered anybody. Yeah, you have. Jesus kind of raised that bar in Matthew's Gospel. You committed murder in your heart. And if you just break one of the commandments, you actually broke, there's only 10. You broke like 30 of them, but whatever. <laughs> you, you've broken God's law. And there's a penalty for that. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been born sinners, which is why we must be born again, Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 6.23 packages the bad news first with the good news. What's the bad news? Well, there's a penalty, and it's the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the A. Here's the B. And this is central, by the way. You could argue that it's simpler than ABC. It's as simple as B, believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him, put their trust in Him, for the forgiveness of sin would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And the C lastly is for call upon the name of the Lord, or as Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. And here's why. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And Romans 10, 13. Oh, I love this verse. All, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And is that not what comes as a result of believing in Him, is a calling upon Him. For me that was over 40 years ago. Don't do the math, I was five. Actually I was older. <laughs> Before we uh, do our but God testimony for today, I just want to say for anyone who might be watching online or even here in this um, church service, and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, believing in Him, putting your trust in Him. I don't know what to tell you except just to tell you, you're running out of time. The time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Why would you want to put off and delay the most important decision of your life for eternal life? Yeah, but pastor, isn't there something else I got to do, more, more to this? All I got to do is believe in Him. That, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Put your trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Because see, here's what's going to happen for everyone, every single one of us, on that great and final day, we're going to stand before the Lord. And it won't matter how good of a life you lived, it won't matter what you did, what you had, doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> the only thing that's going to matter is, what did you do with the person of Jesus Christ? You cannot stand before the Lord in your own righteousness, as filthy rags, Isaiah says. It's very graphic, by the way, in the original. And be allowed entrance into heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't pay for it. If you pay for it, it's not a gift, it's a purchase. He purchased the gift. You're, you're purchased with a price. He paid the price. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, lastly, we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, gift of God, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. I implore you today, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. And get out of Egypt, man. I don't care if they got pizza. I said I wasn't going to use pizza. Okay. Spicy ahi poke then, whatever. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. Today's But God testimony. It comes from uh, Megan Haskins, who writes, Hi JD, I just finished watching your September 11th prophecy update, and I just wanted to thank you. Your words at the end really touched my heart and brought me to tears. It's been about almost two weeks ago that I was in one of the darkest places of my life. My life has been filled with many highs and lows over the summer with my husband, kids, extended family and friends. The enemy and his minions really saw the chinks in my armor lately and used a family member to make me feel like a worthless human being. I'm sure that wasn't their intention, but that was the end result. Over the following days, I just couldn't understand why I was even here anymore, what all of my striving was for, when it seems I can never measure up. For the first time, I really contemplated just ending it all, or just disappearing. Then there would be no more failure. But God, He is so good. He knew what would happen that day, and He knew exactly where I needed to be at that lowest point. I was previously trying to plan a get-together for our family and friends Labor Day weekend, but all my plans had fallen through, which was very frustrating. The weekend before I had signed up for a women's breakfast at church, but expected that it wouldn't work out because of our plans with family. My mom and her husband ended up working it all out with babysitting, even so her and I could go together to the breakfast. That day He comforted me through the arms of all my sisters in Christ who prayed with me, even one sister I had never met prayed with me in the bathroom. His presence engulfed me and deflected those thoughts that suicide or running away were the answer. They were only lies that would hurt those around me. He reminded me of who I am in Christ, loved, worthy, enough, forgiven, a daughter of the King who cares for me and even likes me. (laughs) I like that. God likes you, by the way. No, He likes you. I know He he loves you, but He likes you too. Pretty sad when you live in a day and age when like packs more punch than love. Thank you again for your encouragement in these tough times and being the watchman who's not afraid of man, but who fears God. I love you, brother. Keep fighting the good fight, Megan Haskins. Capono, come on up. Why don't you please stand? Yes, praise the Lord. The update that she's referring to on 9-11, at the end I did sense a prompting from the Holy Spirit to address suicide. And every time I do, I know there is someone that is hearing or watching that has considered it. And I just want to say again today, before we close, it is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Please, I know despair can set in, and just the hopelessness. But that's what should bring you to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Maybe for some it's come back to Jesus. You've wandered and strayed and come back. He's waiting with open arms. And He's going to love on you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to minister to you. He's going to strengthen you. And He's going to encourage you. Father in heaven, thank You. How could we ever thank You enough? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Lord, for anyone that might be 
considering suicide and the taking of their life, please, right now, Lord, as only you can and are always so faithful to, reveal yourself. Lord Jesus, please, save, deliver. And Jesus, come quickly, please. Please come quickly, Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks.